Welcome to Trinity on Tap, the Old Testament, a podcast series brought to you by Trinity College Queensland, presented by Dr. Paul Jones. 1.2, World Making Words. G'day, glad you're back again for another one of these. In the last podcast, we explored how God deals with chaos, both in Genesis 1 and in our lives. Um, And I wonder if you remember the two patterns that we saw there, the two ways that God deals with chaos in Genesis 1. First, uh, God redeems the forces of chaos through order, and the other one was through his redemptive activity, taking things that are useless or broken or bad for us and redeeming them. In this podcast, we're going to talk about how people, how we can co-labor or collaborate with God to rid the world of those life-diminishing forces. There are essentially two things that we can do, and they're, they're basically responses to those two things that we noted that God does. So in response to God ordering the universe, we obey, and in response to God redeeming uh, the mistakes and the bad things that happen, we worship, we express our gratitude. So humans can collaborate through obedience and through worship. Now, obedience probably sounds fairly straightforward. And I guess it is. God communicates through the Bible what he expects from us, why he created us, what he hopes for in making this world, what his purpose is in sending Jesus to live among us, and so on. And we find in the Bible tons of helpful guidelines for living well before God, for living well with our neighbor. And we can either disobey those or we can obey them. Through obedience, we're collaborating with God in making things right. Through obedience, we're maxing out our own potential and we flourish. That's clear enough. But the second one, worship, is sometimes a bit harder to understand. What does it mean to respond to God's redeeming activity by worshipping? Does that mean we just sing Christian songs over and over again on Sunday until we make God feel happy? Well, I'm glad to say no. That's not all there is to it. The Bible suggests that we co-labor with God through worship. Now, in the ancient world, the Israelites went to temples or other sacred sites to say things and do things that declared their hope in God. Now, we're talking two and a half, three thousand 3,000 years ago, and we might call the things that they did uh, religious rituals or rites, and we might call the things that they said liturgy. And through those ritual acts and through that liturgical speech, the Israelites believed that they were making a real difference in the present moment. So enacting certain rituals and saying certain words actually changed things. They weren't just saying them for the sake of saying them. And you see, worship today is not simply singing songs to praise God or even just remembering good things that God has done in the past. And it's certainly not just about trying to make God feel good or trying to make ourselves feel good and get a bit of a buzz. Worship and liturgy are still understood today to be world-making activities. The Psalms are not simply songs or prayers that respond to God. They constitute or establish a reality that we actually hope in. Praise is the embrace of an alternative reality. I like the way Walter Brueggemann puts this. Brueggemann's one of my favorite Old Testament scholars. He puts it this way, the God of Israel, the faith of Israel and the singing of Israel make available a very different world. It is that different world which is entrusted to the pastoral office, a world for which the whole human community deeply yearns. 
See, we don't just sing, hey, God, you're the king, because it makes us feel good or because it makes God feel good. We sing those words out loud to embrace that reality as a way of saying, this is the truth. One day, God's kingship will be recognized by everyone. But for those of us who sing those words now, it's already our reality. We live from Monday to Sunday as though God is king because we believe that he is. Now, maybe communion's a good way to uh, illustrate this when I say that we, we rid the world of chaos through worship. Because when we take communion in church on a Sunday, we remember the past. We remember that Jesus on the night that he was betrayed and so on. But we also eat and drink in anticipation of the future, the new creation when everything is made right. So the celebration of communion It anticipates a day when the church will feast in the new earth as Jesus' bride. That sounds like a lot of jargon. That's just reading or quoting from Revelation 19, 6 to 9. But there there will come a day when the church will feast, as it says in Revelation, in the new earth as the bride of Christ. So as an act of worship, taking communion together today is an act that embraces something that is not yet. And as we worship in the present, we're taking hold of a Christian vision of the future and bringing it to bear on the present. We're saying, as then, so now. That was a a saying that my grandpa taught me um, about making changes in life. He would say, don't just assume that five years, ten years into the future, you'll be a different kind of person. As then, so now. If you want to have certain practices, certain characteristics, Get those, you know, get those behaviors into play now. And that's what we're doing when we bring to bear a a belief about the future into the present. We're saying, as then, so now. But what on earth does this have to do with Genesis 1? Well, I'm glad you asked. Genesis 1 is precisely this kind of liturgical text. It's a public proclamation of truth about the good, ordered world that God desires for us to live in. If that sounds a bit random, let me just take a few steps back and tell you where I'm coming from when I say that. Let's look at the beginning from the end. What I mean by that is that Genesis 1 is at the beginning of our Bibles, and so we often assume that it was written first. But as we noted in the last podcast, Israel learnt over centuries of engaging with God what kind of God he was. The fact that Genesis 1 comes first in the Bible doesn't mean it was the first thing ever written. So let's take a second to think about that. Was someone jetpacking around in space, writing down what happened on those first six days? Was there a third human walking around in the garden, spying on Adam and Eve and writing down what they said and did? Well, it's not likely, is it? It's far more likely to say that Genesis 1 was written near the end of the Old Testament story in the 6th century BC, when Israel and Judah had been defeated and kicked out of their land by Assyria and Babylon. Order was lost. The life-threatening forces of chaos had won. And in that context, in exile, in chaos, we can begin to understand Genesis 1 as world-making words. Actually, most of the Old Testament books came out of the exile. You can see the exile's fingerprints all over many of them. Come and take a class with me at Trinity and I'll I'll show you what I mean. But if you've got the PDF handy, have a look at it. On a timeline of the Bible's contents as literature, creation belongs at the start. 
So if you look at Israel's story, creation is chapter one, if you like. But on a timeline of the Bible's composition, that is, you know, when things were written, creation belongs near the other end. That's what I meant when I said, let's look at the beginning from the end. And look, this isn't actually unusual. It, it might strike you as odd, but it's, it's actually perfectly normal. Do you remember learning to write essays back at school? If you're listening, you might, you might remember your teacher saying, get the content together, you know, get the guts of the essay and then go back and write your introduction to write an introduction that actually introduces what the essay is about. So it's not at all unusual to write an introduction and a conclusion last because those provide sort of bookends to your work. And you can't really write a good introduction or conclusion unless you know what the essay is about. Does that make sense? Or think of it this way as well. Think of when someone writes a biography. Do you think they just grab at random facts from their childhood and put those near the beginning and then grab some more random facts from their adolescent years and put those next and then whatever they can remember about their 20s and 30s and so on? No, no, nobody writes like that. And if they did, nobody would read it. <laughs> it would be dull. A biography needs some themes running through it you know, relationships or aspirations or tragedies and triumphs. What I'm getting at is when you look back at your history, from the end, you see patterns, you see important relationships, and you write those into your story because those are the things that have shaped who you are today. In other words, you write from a mature point of view and you write more interesting stuff about all the parts because you understand the whole. So, when we consider when Genesis 1 was written, long after the Exodus, when Israel had been kicked out of their promised land, were scattered as refugees or exiles in foreign lands, it actually makes a lot of sense that the creation account highlights God's power to redeem, and that's why they write it the way they do. God's power to bring life out of chaos was something that the Israelites really needed to hear, because in the 6th century BC, the context of the Judeans was one of scattering, one of disintegration. And to focus their attention on a creation account where God brings order and life, it, that just could not have been more meaningful. So we see that the tragic context of the author in exile has a significant impact on the theological claims of Genesis 1. No, there was no narrator jetpacking around in space. Of course not. Like every text, the creation account in Genesis 1 was written for a particular purpose at a particular time in history. Now, earlier I said that Genesis 1 is a liturgical text, and I called it um, a public proclamation of truth about the good ordered world that God desires for us to live in. Now that we've got some background on how Genesis 1 was probably written in a time of crisis as a way of reflecting on who God is, let me read you a really insightful comment from John Levinson. John Levinson is the professor of Jewish studies at Harvard Uni. He makes this comment about the significance of Genesis 1 for Judah while they're in exile. He says that Genesis 1 is not about the banishment of evil, but about its control. In building the new structure that is creation, God functions like an Israelite priest, making distinctions, assigning things to their proper category, and assessing their fitness and hallowing, making holy, the Sabbath. 
As a result, the creative ordering of the world has become something that humanity not only witnesses, can not only witness and celebrate, but something in which it can also take part. Among the many messages of Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3 is this. It is through the cult, and by the way, by cult, Levinson means the religious system, the rites and the rituals and the liturgy and so on. It is through the cult that we are enabled to cope with evil, for it is the cult that builds and maintains order, transforms chaos into creation, ennobles humanity, and realizes the kingship of the God who has ordained the cult and commanded that it be guarded and practiced. It is through obedience to the directives of the divine master that his good world comes into existence. So sorry if that was a bit chunky, a bit theological, but in light of that chunky theological nugget there, imagine yourself as an ancient Israelite in exile and have a read of Genesis 1. Just see how it sounds. Try to get into this headspace before you do. Your land, your country has been conquered by invaders who've taken everything of value, but they've let you live. As long as you obey their laws, submit to their king, follow their rules. So the temple where you used to worship has been destroyed. The law that you used to read and follow closely, it's gone. The land that you associated yourself with belongs to someone else. Your leaders are dead or gone. Almost everything that formed your personal sense of identity has been violated or destroyed. All orderliness is gone and chaos has won the day. With that in mind, have a read of Genesis 1. If you're meeting with a group uh, to discuss these podcasts, by the way, you can read through the liturgy that I've put in the PDF, which is actually just a rewording of Genesis 1. So the words in Genesis 1 are world-making words. I hope you can start to understand what I mean by that. I don't just mean that God spoke them in the beginning and created the world. I also mean that those worlds recognize God's creative and redemptive power at a time when Israel was just lost. No temple, no land, no law, no city, no leadership, no identity. The nation was a mess in chaos. And those words established a world that is ordered by God, where darkness and light are separated from one another, according to God's word and God's command. So in this sense, Israel's praise, it doesn't affirm the chaotic world that's around them. Their words, their praise, is a hopeful affirmation of the world that God intended for his people. Do you see how the Old Testament comes alive when we read it in its historical context? I hope you can see some of that, and I hope that it inspires you to do some more reading in that direction. And now, perhaps it makes more sense that we've started with chaos rather than creation, because that's where we find ourselves, before God speaks. See, it's significant that in Genesis 1, before anything is created by God, There is water and darkness, those two life-threatening forces. Because Israel lived in a world that was chaos. Babylon had conquered Jerusalem and Judah were a people living in darkness. Same goes for us, though. It's not just an ancient text again. For us living in the 21st century, we also find ourselves living lives that we could describe as formless and void before God shows up. We inhabit places where darkness covers the face of the deep, so to speak, until God says otherwise. Let there be light, and there is light. So have a think on this question. 
before we come to the next podcast. In what ways does your lifestyle bring God's good, ordered world into being? In what ways does your lifestyle bring God's good and ordered world into being? See you next time. This podcast was brought to you by Trinity College Queensland. Honest answers to tough questions. Visit trinity.qld.edu.au to learn more.